geopolitics and empire is joined by Kevork Almasian, who does fantastic work at Syriana Analysis, which was founded in 2017. Syriana Analysis is pro-united and secular Syria and anti-religious ethnic fundamentalism and separatism. Welcome to geopolitics and empire, Kevork. Thank you very much. It's a really pleasure to be on your show. And it's a pleasure for me to have you. I've been following your work for a long time. I absolutely uh, love it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, some of the same people that I uh, follow you often uh, interview. And, and maybe for people new to your work, if you could just briefly tell us a little about uh, yourself and relation to Syria. Actually, I was born and raised in Syria, in Aleppo, northern part of Syria. I'm a third generation of a survivor of the Armenian genocide, which means my grandparents survived the genocide and they found shelter in Aleppo. And I was born and raised and studied in Syria. I consider Syria my my homeland. I speak uh, Arabic uh, like a mother tongue, uh, just like uh, the Armenian. Um, in it, there were so many developments happened, you know, since I was born, uh, like the Second Intifada, like the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Lebanon, invasion of Libya, and then the. Um, the regime change war in Syria, all these wars left uh, some sort of a trauma um, in me and the, in the entire generation, right? So when the war started in Syria, I was very motivated to defend Syria with words and actions and uh, with the intellect that I collected and uh, in the past years, especially with my education. I studied international relations and diplomacy in Syria, and then I studied European affairs in Paris, and I did Middle Eastern uh, politics as well in Lebanon. So I thought that I know maybe one thing or two uh, better than some people, and I wanted to educate, especially the Syrians at the beginning, uh, in Arabic, because uh, the media campaign was too big, and um, especially regional, um, I would say, media outlets such as Al Jazeera. Um, Al Jazeera had uh, like a 300 million followers in the Arab world. Every home has Al Jazeera. And if Al Jazeera says um, something happening in area A, everybody believes because they uh, they gained reputation and credibility in the past years, especially in their good coverage of the uh, Palestinian and Israeli conflict. So people believe what Al Jazeera says. But there is also the, the trick in Al Jazeera was that in late 2010 and early 2011, when the Arab Spring started, uh, whether the Arab string was manufactured by the United States or not, that that doesn't really um, interest me. What really interests me is what were the outcomes of this Arab Spring and how the United States managed to bring the Muslim Brotherhood to power in Tunisia, Muslim Brotherhood to power in Egypt. And the Muslim Brotherhood, they were, uh, they were the driving force behind the so-called rebel groups in Libya and then in Syria. And who was the main... Uh, I would say, supporter for the Muslim Brotherhood in the region. It was Qatar and Turkey. And Qatar was playing a big financial role, I would say, and also uh, the media aspect of it. They were supporting it hilariously in everywhere. Although Syria was a very good uh, friend of Qatar, there were family relationships between Assad and uh, the family, the ruling family in Qatar. But um, Qatar was tasked by the United States, and this is according to the confession of the former prime minister of Qatar, Hamad ben Jassim, who said, literally on a Qatari national TV, that they were tasked um, to lead the Arab Spring, and especially the Syrian file, uh, between 2011 and 2013. This is what he says. And if we, and later, because in 2017, when Trump uh, unveiled uh, and said that I'm going to stop the CIA um, covered operation in Syria. We understood that there was a covered operation, which was called Timber Sycamore. So uh, at the first two, three years, Qatar led this operation, and then Saudi Arabia was in charge between 2013 and 2018. Uh, look at the timeline, for example. 2013, Bandar bin Sultan uh, came as the head of the intelligence apparatus in Saudi Arabia. And this man, he was also the ambassador of uh, Saudi Arabia in, in the United States for a very, very long time, uh, and especially during the 9-11 attacks. And he had a very close relationship with the uh, uh, George Bush family. He was actually called Banda Bush. Like uh, that much, he was close to the Bush family. So, you know, he, was, he had close ties to the neocons. And uh, he asked for $2 trillion dollars 
from the Arabic countries to overthrow Assad. Two trillion dollars. <laughs> I don't know how many zeros I can add <laughs> on the on, on the right side of two to count the two trillion dollars. He couldn't uh, gather two trillion dollars, but the estimates are very very high. Uh, it's it's at least two hundred billion dollars. And if we compare now the situation in Ukraine, one hundred and thirty billion. Uh, been sent to Ukraine and compare the size of Ukraine and the size of Syria for $200 billion, you understand the amount of weapons, ammunition, and the training that the CIA, the Saudi intelligence, and the Qatari and the Turkish intelligence have um, um, operated in Syria. There were two oper uh, military operational rooms, one in uh, southern Turkey uh, called MOM, and the second operational room was in northern Jordan called Mok. And these two operational rooms were basically deliver weapons to the so-called moderate rebels. They don't exist. They're just the uh, illusional, non-existent moderate rebels. They called them the Free Syrian Army. Okay, there is the flag of the Syrian Free Syrian Army. There is. Uh, they found some uh, generals or officers who deserted from the Syrian Army, and they called them the Free Syrian Army. But this was just the forefront, right? You give the weapons to these groups. These groups fight alongside. Uh, Al Nusra Front, which is the franchise of Al Qaeda, and also they fought alongside ISIS. People do not speak about this, but in Aleppo, the Free Syrian Army they fought shoulder to shoulder till 2014 with ISIS. They only stopped fighting with ISIS when there was a split between Al Qaeda and ISIS itself, and the split was because of. Um, political reasons and uh, who is going to control where and it's not an ideological difference but then we we have people like for example charles lister who calls himself an expert on syria he helped rebrand al-qaeda after the split between isis and uh al nusra or al-nusra front he helped rebrand it and they started to promote that um after the split al-qaeda has become some sort of a more rational a rebel group that you can deal with, right? So th this was this was on all levels. The war on Syria, I would say, financial, military, and also academic. They were people. They made a career out of Syria, and they have no interest in stopping it. But uh, in my opinion, after eleven years, um, with the help of the allies of Syria, uh, the Syrian army managed to capture seventy percent of the territories. Um, I think Turkey will withdraw from Syria after the elections. Um, Erdogan might win this election. And there is this argument that in Syria that, yeah, we know that Erdogan inflicted the most uh, pain upon the Syrian people. He he opened 800-kilometer borders to multinational jihadists. Were it not for that, ISIS uh, couldn't exist. And the second part is... Uh, without an open border, ISIS cannot sell its its uh, the the looted oil from Syria to the black market. So the argument is that ISIS has become uh, converted from an organization into a state because it had financial uh, independence, and that happened because they were looting the Syrian oil and selling it in the Turkish black market. But now in twenty twenty three. The argument is that Erdogan, after the attempted coup against him in 2016, he did some shifts in the uh, regional politics and um, he has become closer to Russia. And he's balancing his relationship between NATO and Turkey. And they think it's better than Kilicdaolo, who might be closer to Washington than Erdogan himself. Although Kilicdaolo also says that he's going to withdraw from Syria. Um, but Syria is in a weak situation right now. Uh, despite everything we listen in the media, I mean, 11 years of war, and then you had to invite your allies, uh, Iran and Russia. And Iran and Russia, um, they um, send a wish to Damascus, telling like it would be nice if the foreign minister of Syria meets with uh, the Çavuşoğlu, the foreign minister of Turkey, before the elections in Turkey to give um, some diplomatic uh, boost to Erdogan before the elections, because in front of your people, 
when you go and tell the people that I'm going to solve the problems with the neighbors, and one of the problems is 3.5 million refugees, right? And I'm going to push the Kurdish militias uh, 30 kilometers away from the borders. How are you going to do that if there is no partner in Syria uh, recognizing you? So when you when you meet with the Syrian side, you give the impression to the people that the Syrian side is ready to deal with you. And that's what happened. And I think it's a win-win situation between Syria and Turkey because, um, and I'm saying this as also an ethnic Armenian, you know, my, my position is like very, very negative towards Syria, but I'm thinking about the strategic interests of Syria, right? If Turkey withdraws from Syria, disarms the jihadists in Idlib and the north, uh, Syria is ready to accept 3.5 million refugees and is ready to uh, push the Kurdish militias 30 kilometers away from the borders. I think this is a win-win situation. And um, when this deal is implemented, if it's implemented, the American occupation forces will be cornered in the East diplomatically and militarily. They will no more be able to act freely except in Iraq. Uh, and that's not enough for them. And they don't have uh, thousands of soldiers. They're like around 1,000 soldiers. They train 60,000 Kurdish militias there and some Arabic clans and former ISIS fighters who wanted to join these uh, so-called Syrian Democratic Forces. But if they want to establish a Kurdish entity in the, in, in, in the east of Syria, uh, it will be like an island. Like it's it's like a second Israel for them, right? Uh, they will be um, surrounded by uh, all enemy um, entities. Syria will not accept. Turkey will not accept. And even Iraq, official Iraq, cannot accept that. Yeah, Kurdistan is different case. But um, in order to preserve any sort of Kurdish entity over the Syrian land, then you have to keep forces there and you have to establish an air bridge in order to bring food medicine fuel uh, um, military equipment etc and the americans aren't ready to do that and um uh, entire middle east is changing uh, after the ukraine war because the balance of power uh, is shifting uh, very clearly. And this is not something that we say it uh, like in order to sell some illusions to the people. It's quite obvious that uh, there are so many countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, they don't make big um, steps. They don't take big steps without the consent of the United States. Uh, such as normalization of relations with Iran, such as normalization of relations with Syria. But these countries found themselves in a situation that uh, the U.S. is very, uh, very much involved in the Ukraine war. They aren't really ready to follow up on hot files in the Middle East. And secondly, they found alternative forces ready to deal with them economically, politically, diplomatically, and militarily, first with respect, and secondly, as peers. The Americans have different approach with their allies. And um, unfortunately, um, uh, the, 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 the former president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, once said, um, anyone who covers himself with the blanket of the Americans, he gets cold. This was like before, uh, like 20 years ago. Everybody knows this because the Americans can abandon and there are no certain principles in their foreign policy. It's, it's purely based on interest. Um, the same thing applies to other countries. But in 2015, Syria was losing the war, right? So the Russians, they gambled when they uh, intervened in the Syrian war. And they gambled with their reputation, with the reputation of their army, the reputation of their arm industries. Can you imagine if the Russians lost and they couldn't defeat the terrorists in Syria, what could have happened to the arm industry in, in Russia? So there, there is a minimum level of principled foreign policy when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China. Russia and China vetoed lots of UN Security Council resolutions, and they stood in front of a very big tsunami of uh, criticism for Syria. Syria is a tiny country, but they did it for Syria, right? And now, uh, Saudis, Emirates, they, they were watching these developments in the past uh, one decade. And after the attempted coup d'etat in Turkey, and if the reports are accurate that the CIA tried to uh, get rid of uh, Erdogan, uh, 
uh, then the Saudis also understood that they're not immune. And the Emirates also understood they're not immune. Please call, tell me one example of uh, any ally to Russia or China where the Chinese or the Russians tried to topple their own ally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to go uh, get your further thoughts. And, and just to add what you said about Syria, you know, Francis Boyle, who I've interviewed, I used this book, Destroying Libya and World Order, in my classes where I taught previously in foreign policy. And in, in that book, he says, 2011, I think 2011, when they went after Gaddafi in Libya, uh, Russia and China did not uh, veto because at that point they were too weak militarily uh, to do anything about, you know, NATO. They just kind of left Gaddafi. Uh, to the dogs because they couldn't do anything. But I think by the time 2015 came along, as you said, with Syria, Russia was slowly building and they were at that point where they could gamble. And now they're, you know, all these countries are getting uh, stronger. And um, just on your point to ISIS earlier, I, I have to mention, I, I, I loved Michael Flynn's work, the former uh, head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And in 2012, they declassified the document from the DIA, which basically yes. said the, the West and European countries were funding this office and 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 uh, isis and he even told mehdi hassan in an interview uh flynn yes. that the obama administration was intentionally knowingly uh doing all of this and uh, let me ask you you know recently i over the weekend i was at a small dinner with colonel douglas uh, mcgregor which i'm sure you're familiar with who worked under wesley clark supreme nato commander uh and he was telling us stories about you know, the 1990s in, in Iraq and Yugoslavia. Uh, and Wesley Clark, we all know, he's the guy who came out and said after 9-11, we've all seen that interview where he says the Pentagon's going to invade seven Middle Eastern countries in five years. And so what are your thoughts as to what, what's, what, you know, what was the game from the U.S.? Uh, you know, according to Francis Boyle, he say, he calls it unlimited imperialism, basically to take over the world. And the end game is Russia, China, uh, and Iran. So, you know, yeah. your broader thoughts on what were they going for and where are they now? Because it seems, as you're saying, they're failing. And then can this lead to a wider global conflict? Because it seems like they, they're trying to make Ukraine into Syria. Now they want to make Taiwan into Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, your further thoughts. Actually, uh, the invasion of Iraq was the trigger for the so-called New Middle East. And Condoleezza Rice said uh, after the invasion of, uh, for example, Lebanon in 2006 by Israel, that this is the birth pound of the New Middle East. The New Middle East was um, a project of uh, dividing the Middle East further on ethnic, sectarian and religious basis. Uh, when the First World War was over and the French and the Brits, they colonized the Middle East, they divided the countries. Um, uh, there were no such borders, right? They, they were the ones who created Syria and then Lebanon and then Iraq and then Jordan. This is all called the Levant or Bilad al-Sham. Um, therefore, the divide and conquer strategy still is relevant in 2023. And um, because uh, Syria and Iran and other Middle Eastern countries, they were able to find certain political and military mechanisms to resist the American imperialism in, in the region, and especially against Israel. I mean, they weren't going to eradicate Israel from the map, like they tried to say in the statements, right? But they were always uh, posing a security challenge uh, to Israel. And um, then the amount of weaponry, the type of weaponry that they were producing, the uh, mutual uh, cooperation in terms of developing technology, Remember in 2007, uh, Israel bombed um, a hidden secret um, facility in eastern Syria. And, uh, and later in the memos of Ehud, um, sorry, uh, Olmert, uh, we learned that um, it was probably an, a nuclear technology which was hit. So these countries were trying to challenge the American hegemony in the region for the interests of the people in the region because at the end of the day, this region is very rich in uh, natural resources. And, um, and since the end of at least World War II, 
how did the Americans overthrow the government in Iran because they wanted to uh, because the Iranian government wants to nationalize the oil and they bombed um, uh, Egypt in '53 because he nationalized the Suez Canal. It's not allowed in the Middle East for you to be independent in terms of your economy and in in terms of your political uh, decisions. Uh, but then you had a person like Hafez al-Assad. He comes uh, after a coup. And uh, and he 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 establishes a strong state from a tiny state. Uh, I think it was Obama who says like uh, it's like a small bone that is stuck in your throat, right? Like you can't swallow it. Syria was like that. Um, uh, it, it, when they invaded Iraq, Syria supported the resistance in Iraq, and I'm not. And and uh, the American officers and generals they don't forget that. And they uh, they have lots of losses among their ranks, and they say this is because of the Syrian support. So in one way or another, they had to divide the region. They Syria can uh, is dividable into three parts. For example, they would say it's a Sunni state, and then the Christian and the Alevi state, and then you have the Kurdish state. Okay. The same thing is in Iraq already, Kurdistan, Shiites, and the Sunnis. So when you divide the region into sectarian and ethnic and religious bases, um, you give legitimacy to Israel because Israel considers itself or declares itself as a, as a Jewish-only state. And if all your neighbors are divided on similar lines, so where is the problem for Israel to be a state only for the Jews? Right? And uh, the, 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 the main concept of ISIS, an Islamic state, is in parallel with the Jewish state. What's the difference uh, between them? Yeah, of course, Jewish state is based on different laws and regulations and stuff. But the, 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 the main concept of it to, for in Syria to, um, Syria to be an Islamic state in one way or another, it's, it just serves the strategic interests of Israel. This is in my opinion. And I think Syria, um, after 2015, and this is an information your audience, I'm sure they would like to know, um, Syria was communicating with the uh, Russian side and the Russians were watching that we were losing the war, but they didn't intervene. It was General Qasem Soleimani who uh, traveled to Moscow and he met with uh, President Putin. And there was a uh, six hours of meeting between Putin and uh, Qasem Soleimani with maps and military generals and everything, explaining them the situation on the ground in Syria and how dire it is and what ISIS is doing and they're advancing to Damascus and what the repercussions could be on the national security of Iran. And after Iran, you know, it's, it comes Central Asia. It's it's not going to stop. This is like a domino uh, effect. It's going to it's gonna go to Iran and it's going to go to Central, uh, Central Asia. It's going to go to Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and all these countries that border uh, Russia. This is going to be the end. Of, of Russia. If Russia intervenes in these countries and these countries turn into uh, hell, like in Syria, it would have been the end of Russia, in my opinion. So, um, and at the same time, remember, uh, John Kerry was meeting with opposition figures in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, someone was recording the meeting uh, and he leaked the, someone leaked the recording later to the media at the same time when the Russians decided to intervene. Uh, uh, John Kerry says, um, we were watching the growth of ISIS. And we thought that the ISIS advance to Damascus uh, will add pressure on President Assad. And we thought that when ISIS um, um, advances, advances to uh, Damascus, then Assad will compromise. This, this is what, what he said. They were watching because remember the so-called US-led campaign against ISIS started in 2014. So in this one year, ISIS expanded so much and they were already in Damascus in the Yamuk camp. So the United States was watching the advance of ISIS from Tadmor, from Palmyra to Damascus to add pressure on Assad. And he, then he says, instead of him compromising, he, uh, Putin intervened on his side. <laughs> This was this is this is what he says in in behind closed doors, and this was leaked by WikiLeaks, and they tried so much to discredit this uh, leak, but they couldn't because it was true, and this was a true intention of the Americans, as you mentioned, in 2012, the report of the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's it's detrimental. You, this paper was in, on the desk of Barack Obama. He read it, he understood it, and he authorized 
arming the jihadists in Syria. This was a conscious decision to arm um, jihadists in Syria and uh, motivate uh, multinational jihadists to join this war, just like in Afghanistan in the late 70s and early 80s. And it's very easy to bring them to Syria because one, you can mobilize them by religious um, uh, speeches and you have the Saudis and the Qataris in your pocket back then. And if I if I want to mention the names of the imams and the sheikhs who were calling for jihad against Syria, we will we will not finish this show today. I remember all their names, and people because do not watch Arabic channels, they do not know this stuff. But the main motivators for these people, for the jihadists to come to Syria, were sitting in Saudi Arabia in Qatar, and they were given platforms on Al Jazeera. And they were saying, uh, anyone who stands with the Syrian government, whether it's civilian or a military personnel, it is permissible to kill them. This is a fatwa. And people were coming to Syria to fight. And uh, 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 Western intelligence agencies, they were turning a blind eye to the flow of uh, the radical jihadists from their countries to Syria. In 2014 or 13, the head of the... Um, uh, police department, the criminal uh, department in uh, Bavaria, he was asked by ZDF channel about how, how these German 450 German jihadists came to Syria. <laughs> I have never seen any official that um, honest who said, uh, we allow them to go to Syria. We, even if they don't have passports, we give them passports. I mean, we know that these people are radicals and they're danger to our society. So we export this problem to the outside world. It's like yeah, I, I, I recall, you know, Putin at one UN talk between the lines referenced this, and I've I've heard many people like the, I forget his name. The former head of Afghanistan said that he, he gave an interview a few years back that they had American helicopters basically um, carrying da Daesh and, and, and ISIS. Uh, soldiers and um Kivork, then what do you make of sort of where and I, I thought I'd mention you mentioned Kazakhstan I lived in Kazakhstan from 2017 to 2020 and I can't one of my, some of my students were working with uh NGOs financed by USAID Soros and NED <laughs> my student actually showed me she got an award in Cyrillic that said NED, she had no idea what she was participating in. And I warned my higher ups in Kazakhstan. And I had later Kazakh internal security meet with me, the K the Kazakh KNB security and intelligence service were inquiring about me. They were kind of suspicious about me because I've got three passports. I'm an American, Croatian, Mexican. So they they were wondering if I was a spy, but no, I'm, I'm an American. And I don't like that my government is trying to overthrow Kazakhstan, and we saw a year ago in January, right? There was this attempted color revolution, which seemed to yes. have failed. Um, but you know, they keep going. They they've taken Imran Khan out of Pakistan for now. It looks like they might try in Georgia. Um, they're trying in Georgia again, and they did in Armenia, right? And and so, how, where do you see kind of things going? I know I know you've uh, I think you've had Patrick <laughs> Henningsen on recently to talk about. Ukraine, and we've got this whole multipolar world growing, as you were referring to earlier. There's de-dollarization. Every day I'm seeing, you know, uh, last week Bolivia wants to use uh, yuan instead of dollars, Thailand and Argentina and Brazil. And so, you know, your sort of big picture thoughts of sort of w where we're uh, going. You know, uh, every, every empire, U.S. is an empire, and we have to accept that. And every empire, like, um, passes through a cycle, right? And in my opinion, the United States is the in the last third of its cycle, and it's 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 declining, and it's just the pace of this decline. It's not yet clear if it's going to be in a decade or two or faster. But the Ukraine war will be detrimental in this regard, and also the de-dollarization. If Saudi Arabia is serious about the dealing with China in U1, I think that's already a major blow to uh, to the American empire because we had the petrodollar at least since the 70s, right? Which controlled the uh, fuel uh, markets through dealing with, uh, with the dollar. I think the uh, Ukraine war, um, nobody will win this war. Um, uh, we, we do, because we don't know what's the victory for Russia and what's the victory for... Uh, I think victory for Russia would be to remove uh, Zelensky from power, entire regime change. And I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, 
Um, the as much as as the days pass and you see the enthusiasm among the elites in Europe and in the United States of um, su more support to Ukraine, despite the consequences on the ground, you know that um, this is a sign of a panic. And they know that Ukraine means the fall of the Western, collective Western uh, empire, right? Um, I'm very worried about Ukraine. And I think if um, Russia feels that they are not able to at least capture the entire Donbass region, and keep the Mariupol and the uh, peninsula. And if the Ukrainians wage um, an effective counteroffensive by American, British, and German arms, and they try to capture Crimea, I, I do not rule out the possibility of Russia using a tactical nuclear weapon. I do not rule out that possibility at all. And if there is one country that is going to be hit the first, it's going to be the United Kingdom. <laughs> they're gonna it's gonna be in the uk for sure they're the most uh, enthusiastic about uh, this war and zelensky was in germany yesterday unfortunately i mean i don't want to talk much about the german government because there is no freedom of speech in germany and the german government uh, came after me so many times uh, for topics so much sillier, like talking about the refugee crisis or saying that uh, the refugees aren't all running from Assad and saying that no, many of them are running from ISIS, the German government came after me. So there is no freedom of speech here. And um, the thing is, uh, however, the Western side is very strong on the cultural aspect. Any empire has uh, pillars, economic, military, and cultural. And I think the Chinese and the Russians, they have a strong economies and strong armies, but they lack the cultural aspect of it. They are anti-Western values, but they're not presenting um, a certain uh, um, type of um, values to the Western, Eastern West, East European people to be convinced that the Russian side and the Chinese side could be an ally. For example, in Armenia, in Georgia, most of the young people, if you just, I'm talking about the youngsters, if you do a referendum now, the vast majority of them would choose uh, the European Union. And, and that is because of the cultural aspect of it and how attractive is the EU in the media, in the movies, in, in the music, and lots of things that, um, scholarships and, and, um, Indoctrination through these NGOs, you mentioned the NED, like if you go to Armenia, last time I was, um, first time I was in Armenia, 2017, Pashinyan was not in power, and I just saw normal uh, society like you see in everywhere. And in 2023, 20, uh, last time I was, uh, a few months ago, I was in Armenia, just a few years after Pashinyan came to power in 2018, you already start to see a change in the society in terms of radical feminists uh, in the street, you know, because you can, you can see from their hair colors and the way they dress the European style and this stuff, you know? So you know that these people are pursuing identity politics in their own countries. They're pursuing the gender identity and, and uh, it works. It works in so many levels because it turns the people into some sort of a zombie that they put their brains aside and they just follow their instincts and their clans instead of it's it's just a division in the society, vertical div divisions in the society based on a skin color, based on a gender, based on uh, ethnicity and all this stuff. And uh, this is very bad for the Armenian society in for the future, but for the Western societies, they are gaining leverage over Armenia. And now you can see Pashinyan has turned the country upside down against Russia. And, and, and this is, this is against the Armenian uh, national security because uh, Armenia is in the Southern Caucasus and it's not in somewhere in Canada or in Western Europe close to the United States one. And uh, secondly, um, uh, the entire region in the Caucasus, uh, Turkey, Azerbaijan, Iran, they're all pursuing better relationship with Russia. It's just because they know the world is changing and it's just Armenia 
just turned the bus the other way around and walking opposite of the uh, opposite yeah, of history. Yeah, yeah, and let me just add, you know, I, I'm a EU citizen, uh, Croatian <laughs> citizen. I'm trying to warn people, like you say, you're running into problems with the Germans. I'm like, the West is supposed to be all about freedom and democracy and, and liberty. And then you have like uh, Alina Lip, the German citizen, gets her bank account shut just for doing what we're doing now. And then her parents' bank accounts shut. Uh, I, as a U.S. citizen, I had the Department of Homeland Security cancel my PayPal last year. I'm banned on uh, Patreon. Wh where's this Western, you know, rules-based order of freedom and democracy? And so, you know, I, I'm trying to warn people. Uh, you know, for me, the EU is like a totalitarian uh, construct. And, you know, I wanted to get one of your final thoughts on, on Europe. I've, I've interviewed on the program Thierry Maison of the Voltaire Network, French intellectual, uh, Guy Metton, Swiss uh, journalist. And both were saying that as a result of the Ukraine situation, um, Europe is kind of collapsing. You were kind of alluding to it as a result of Ukraine. Europe is being deindustrialized, especially Germany. Um, freedoms are less and less being they're they're being restricted. And so, uh, any thoughts on uh, um, on the EU uh, and, and and Europe as a result of everything that's going on? I will just refer to the statement of the first NATO general secretary: "Keep the Americans in, Russians out, and the Germans down." And uh, Germany, it's not a coincidence that in 2021, the Greens received a huge support from the Americans and their, you know, NGOs and uh, media outlets, and also the Social Democrats. Those are the ones who called for green energy. They came to power, they uh, shutting down the nuclear uh, energy factories. And now they, they, they were going to cancel the Nord Stream pipelines and then they were, <laughs> and then the Americans bombed the Nord Stream pipelines and they're very happy about it and not even asking for investigation. I mean, those things are not coincidence for me. When a politician is in a position of power and your major infrastructure is being hit and you're not even uh, asking for uh, what's the result of this investigation and then you call, like the German media called Simmer Hirsch a blogger. And, and 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 if you check every single one of them, they, it, it, there is a repetition of a certain uh, um, certain sentences in these articles. Those are scripted articles. They come either from the NSA, CIA. They have a huge presence here in Germany to uh, to the German authorities, and the German authorities sent them. And recently, we found out that. Um, there was a question by the opposition party, the AFD, that uh, how much the uh, foreign ministry and how much the the interior ministry are sending funds to the media outlets. And we found out that since this new coalition, the amount of government funding to journalists increased 40%. And they're giving them side jobs as well. <laughs> and, and, and they're you know, can I get some of that? And and they're cutting off my access to finance. There you go, <laughs> my friend. There is no democracy here. Did you are allowed to say what you want to say? Uh, it's different. Like in Syria, it's a stupid way of governance. Like if you really challenge the system there, really, like uh, you are really working with, let's say, some outside forces, or really challenging the system in a way. They throw you in jail. They don't throw you in jail here. They throw you in in an invisible economic jail, and they uh, uh, they wage a character assassination. You lose your job. You lose your funding. You lose your bank account. You're done. You're done. In 2019, the German mainstream press they waged a brutal media campaign against me, so that I lose all this stuff. Right. So uh, now, if 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 I want to apply to a job. In Germany, who's gonna who's gonna hire me? Just type my name in any German uh, Google uh, research results, and it's gonna be all a radical person, um, a person who might be who Assad sent him to Europe in order to pursue his strategy in in like crazy things. Like I get asked by um, journalists if I am a spy for Assad. 
it's it's crazy like these people they have no clue that in syria they are patriotic people who are ready to defend their country because they don't know what patriotism means because for them if you're patriotic then you are a, a right-wing extremist this is how they equate things but things are in my opinion very dire in germany economically um we are paying a lot like uh, if let's say someone receives let's say a thousand euro per month i think his salary is now around like 700 to 650 equivalent because the prices are too expensive in everything uh, the smaller things are more expensive they're like 100 more expensive uh, than the more expensive things and they're financing this war on the on the back of the people so for how long they can do this this is the question if a serious economic crisis hit germany this is my prediction and i hope it's it, it it won't never happen because i love this country and i wish the best for its people but if it happens the stability and security in germany is based on the social welfare the people can if you lose your job there is a job center and agentu agentu for arbeit and all these agencies who can finance your salary and for your um rent and stuff but these people are used since at least the uh, after world war 2 um they are not used on survival instincts they they didn't suffer from harsh economic conditions they don't know how to survive now they will start like there will be lots of robberies there will be lots of uh, skyrocketing crime rates and remember and people i don't understand why do they blame me when i say this statistically speaking there there is like 1 million syrian refugees arrived in 2015 and now we are in 2023 the number of syrian refugees who do not work and they still receive uh, social uh, security funds 60% so if you cut the funding for these people i'm not saying they're going to commit go all of them commit mm. crimes but some of them will commit crimes right how are they going <laughs> to secure the milk and the food for their babies or for their families so um and and if that happens i suspect the afd will come to power because uh, psychologically speaking uh, people tend to vote to the parties and the politicians who weren't responsible for their misery regardless of their orientation and the only political party in germany that represents a challenge to the current system is the uh, far right afd and they uh, are now the intelligence apparatuses follow like checking their whatsapps checking their everything they're leaking the whatsapps to the media and the media leaks whatsapp conversations between two afd politicians and they say and they don't even say who who gave them this uh, copies but, but, but we we can't get the leaked whatsapp conversation from ursula von der leyen and and yeah. head of, of pfizer albert burla and, and but they want to break encryption and be able to read all europeans emails and, and encrypted messages but for we can't read theirs so i mean <laughs> yeah they're coming after afd they are now trying to label it as um a radical party that uh, you know because under the constitution they they, they always uh, play safe under the constitution and they are trying to change the regulations they're trying to change the uh, interpretation of the laws you know so that they consider it uh, a radical party and kick it out from the political scene if the afd is out of the political scene i will name you the cdu is uh, the christian democratic union is 100% with the americans the social democrats are 100% with the americans the greens are 100% with the americans the free democrats are 100% with the americans the left party the linke uh, half of it are against the american imperialism and the other other half they're trying to be like the greens <laughs> you know so and they don't have even 5% of in the bundestag so if they now um get rid of the afd there is no opposition left in in germany and they're trying to do it just like they're trying to do with trump and i'm not defending afd or trump i'm just really trying to say that this is the opposition trump is the opposition now to uh, the ukraine war and he's promising that he will stop it and i think they will do everything in their capacity uh, to not let him come to power and uh, for me uh, people people like 
you know, I just want to mention this thing. I come from the Middle East. I come from Syria. But when you come to Europe, you know, all these tolerance parties, they're like, oh, my God, you're from Syria. Come, let, let, I will give you membership in our party. You receive scholarships. You, we give you jobs. And, like, yeah, they, these Middle Easterners are happy. And they get jobs and they feel, like, uh, accepted and everything. But, they, but their parents in Syria, they're being murdered by the same tolerant people. They, those are the same ones sanctioning the Syrian people. Those are the same ones sending weapons to Syria. And uh, but if you if you have any contact with the AFD, who's saying we don't want refugees here, we want stability and safety and security for Syria. We don't want to sanction Syria and Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The people in the Middle East go crazy. Oh my God! How can you? How can you be in touch with such a party? Because people do not see the bigger image. There is 18 million Syrians suffocating in Syria, and the AFD is saying, I'm going to um, like uh, stop sanctioning Syria. Which one is more important for me, my personal just career and selling my soul to these people who are killing my people in Syria? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it's it's it's. I've experienced the same thing here in Mexico. I, I taught at the uh, most elite Mexican university, and uh, a number of my Mexican students. Uh, I see them uh, working in the foreign service, taking photos with uh, Justin Trudeau, and they don't understand that they're working for the empire against their own Mexican national. Um, my friend, in Germany, just... in Germany, if you are a Syrian and you know how to write and read, and you are anti-Assad. And you want to be in the public sphere, you get it. What do you want? They they would write books about you and how much you suffered under like they are illiterate people with no education, not even a university certificate. They have become authors and best-selling books just because they are Syrian, they can read and write, and they're anti-Assad. And they're if you have an uh, if you open your um, a restaurant here and you're anti-Assad and posting on your Facebook and Twitter that you're anti-Assad, the TV channels come and does advertisement for your restaurants. This is how things work. It's it's uh, incredible. And uh, Kavork, let me say, the analysis of Syriana analysis does not uh, disappoint. Uh, I very much enjoy your views. And if you've got any final thought, and then if you could let us know What's the best way to support you and the work that you're doing? Some people think telling the truth um, is um, is not enough. I would say no. If you t if you tell the truth and the objective truth that you think about certain political and geopolitical uh, conflicts, and you say it to your friends and to your surroundings, the circle will go. And it has always a domino effect or butterfly effect. And people do not, people underestimate how much telling the truth is important. And they think the repercussions of telling the truth is worse than not telling the truth, which is not true. When you, when you don't speak up and um, try to uh, at least challenge the evil, and I'm very serious about this, the evil will grow. And people think if you avoid it, it will not come after you. No, my friend. Even if, if you're not, even if you're not interested in politics, politics is interested in you. And and we have seen after the pandemic what happened and how they came to our personal freedoms and our our personal choices, and how they locked us up in our homes and everything. And you and you did that because although you can see the objective truth with your own eyes. And then they impose the everything, the injection on the people. You know that that's wrong, but you didn't speak up. So first, I urge the people to speak up. I'm very serious about that. If 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 speaking up was not working and it's irrelevant, they wouldn't dare to come after independent journalists to censor to the platform to close their bank accounts to 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 all these things because it is relevant. So this is the first thing. This is why I started Syrian analysis. I wanted to. I I, I felt like I'm suffocating. I want to tell what's happening in my country to the Western audience, and thankfully I gained. Um, good amount of following and I build a, a relationship with my audience based on trust 
because people are not stupid. People are smart, and people can see that Kevork is honest, Eva is honest, and the other journalists are honest, and they have a track record in uh, telling the truth. And um, even if they miss um, the, in their analysis, you know that they didn't try to manipulate you or to lie uh, to you. So this is very important to start. If you have the capacity, guys, to influence your surrounding on an individual level or start your podcast, do. Like, uh, this is the time now for us to move because multipolarity doesn't mean the cancellation of the West, like the West and collective West is trying to promote. Multipolarity means that the West has its own governing system, its own values, its own cultures, its own civilizations, which was very important for humanity. But at the same time, other civilizations and other values and other histories will also be relevant. And they will not be pushed under the bus like the, uh, unfortunately, the US-led empire did. And they smashed um, the vast majority of the people in the Middle East, in different places around the world, killed millions of people. And a lot of people did not, uh, didn't care about it. And now, for in, when the war in Ukraine erupted, all of a sudden, everybody cares and everybody wants to raise a Ukrainian flag. Come and see here in Berlin. Uh, if you raise a German flag, you are a nationalist, right-wing person. But Ukrainian flags are everywhere. Ukrainian flags and LGBTQ flags everywhere. And I don't mind. Everybody is free to raise the flag. But do not tell me it's normal. You live in Germany and you don't see German flags and you only see the Ukrainian flags everywhere. <laughs> Uh, luckily, still, uh, you know, I, I can see American flags uh, in America and Mexican flags in, in, in Mexico. Let me just bring up a quote I came across recently from Ron Paul, who said, speak up, speak often, and don't worry about those that at this point cannot understand as they can never unhear what we tell them. So basically, seeds will be uh, planted. And I will include all of your links in the description, uh, Kivork, and hopefully people subscribe and, and, and listen to Syriana uh, analysis. You know, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's fantastic. And thank you for joining me on Geopolitics. Thank you and so I much, my friend. And thank you so much for your work and hosting me on your channel. It's a really pleasure uh, to be on your show. And hopefully also in the future, you will come to my show. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.